Pleasing God is seeking God's kingdom and righteousness by living in conformity to God's person, nature, and law. Previously, in a message on knowing how to please God, we underscored six means from Scripture by which one can please God. First, by demonstrating faith. Second, by living in submission to the Holy Spirit. Third, by fearing the Lord. Fourth, by following Jesus. Fifth, by obeying God's will. And sixth, by offering sacrifices, such as the sacrifice of our lips or the sacrifice of praise, the sacrifice of our life. As believers, striving to please God, striving to follow those six areas in our lives, we need to be aware that there are obstacles to pleasing God. In fact, there are six major obstacles that we will encounter as believers striving to please God. First, there is the world. Second, there is the flesh. Third, there is the devil. Fourth, there is the Pharisaical leaven. Fifth, there is what we call antinomianism. And sixth, there is carnal Christianity. These six areas are obstacles which we must overcome. And in our few moments together, we're going to consider each of these six obstacles. So let's begin with the world. The first obstacle, the world, is one of a trifecta of enemies along with the flesh and the devil. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 2 to 3. In which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. Among them we too all formerly lived in the lust of our flesh. The world refers to those philosophies or ideologies that are alienated from and in rebellion against God. This system of worldliness is under the control of the devil himself. 1 John 5.19 We know that we are of God and that the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. So the world is a satanic system that is opposed to God. The world, this satanic system, is condemned by God and is passing away. 1 Corinthians chapter 7 and verse 31. And those who use the world, again, that's that satanic system of rebellion against God, and those who use the world as though they did not make full use of it, for the form of this world is passing away. First John 2.17, the world is passing away, and also it's lust, but the one who does the will of God lives forever. See, this satanic system attacks us as believers via the lust of our flesh, the lust of our eyes, and the boastful pride of life. 1 John 2.16 For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the boastful pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. 1 John 2.16 Now, my friends, there are four means by which you and I can be victorious over the world. If you want to have victory over this satanic system of rebellion, first, 
we must consider ourselves dead to the world. Number one, consider yourself dead to the world, Galatians 6.14. But may it never be that I would boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, through which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. See, being dead to the world means that you don't have to succumb to the world. Now, Christian, have you crucified yourself? Have you put the world to death? Or are you still breathing life into it? You've got to crucify it. You've got to put it to death. You've got to nail it to that cross. Every time you go back to that system, that system of oppression, that system of rebellion, you're breathing new life into it. So first, you must consider yourself dead to the world. Second, we must separate ourselves from the world. James 1.27 Pure and undefiled religion in the sight of our God and Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself unstained by the world. That word unstained, aspalas. It's the idea of unspoiled. It, it, uh, spilos, the Greek term spilos, would mean to dirty a garment, to get a spot of dirt upon a garment. So aspilos, the negation of spilos, means that there is no staining, there is no dirt on the garment. Christian, the world wants to corrupt you. It wants to dirty you. It wants to make you filthy. It wants, to be, wants you to be morally corrupted. And so you have to separate from the world. You have to put yourself in a position where you're not going to be stained. In fact, you are to keep yourself from that. And that word keep means to preserve yourself, to guard yourself against worldliness. Again, we all live in the world, but we don't have to be part of that worldly system, that satanic system of disobedience, of rebellion against God. John chapter 15 and verse 19 says, If you were of the world, the world would love its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world. See, Christian, you've been chosen out of the world. You've been separated by God from that system. Because of this, the world hates you. Listen, the world wants nothing more than to destroy you. That satanic system wants to take you out. Verse 17, I am no longer in the world, and yet they themselves are in the world. And I come to you, Holy Father. Keep them in your name, the name which you have given me, that they may be one even as we are. And then chapter 17 and verse 16, they are not of the world even as I am not of the world. Christ was not of the world. He was in the world, but he didn't identify with the worldly system. He didn't identify with that satanic system. And you bear his name, Christian. And listen, the moment you were saved, the moment you were regenerated, you became a child of God, and you were separated from the world. Don't go back to the world. Just like Paul says and James tells us in James uh, chapter 4, friendship with the world is what? Hostility with God. You were once an enemy of God. Now you're a child of God. Don't go back and start living again like an enemy of God. So you've got to consider yourself dead to the world. You've got to separate from the world. And third, we are not to love the world. James chapter 4 and verse 4. You adulteresses, do you not know that friendship with the world is hostility towards God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. 
Now, the idea of love there, it's that, it's that uh, Greek word agapetos, which means self-sacrificing love. Don't, self, don't sacrifice yourself for the desires or the lust or the wants of this world. 1 John 2, 15 and 17. Do not love the world. Listen, if you love the world, you are a spiritual adulteress because you have a love relationship with Jesus Christ. He's the groom and you're his bride. And so if you're loving on the world, you're committing spiritual adultery. You're flirting and fornicating with someone who is not your husband. Do not love the world nor the things in the world. Don't love the world. Don't love the philosophies of the world. Don't love the ideologies of the, ideologies of the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes, boastful pride of life is not from the Father, but from the world. The world's passing away, but also its lust. But the one who does the will of God lives forever. So if you're going to be in a relationship with a system that rebels against God, it's communicating that you don't have a relationship with God. Beware. Consider your ways. So... View yourself dead to the world. Separate from the world. Don't love the world. And the fourth means by which you can be victorious over the world, number four, is don't let your values be shaped by the world. Don't allow your values to be shaped by the world. Romans chapter 12 and verse 2, Be not conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you may prove that what the will of God is, that which is good, acceptable, and perfect. That word conformity... Suscomitizo means to shape your behavior. Don't shape your behavior after the world, after the satanic system of rebellion. Believer, you cannot behave like Christ and behave like the world. Just like Jesus said, you can't love two masters. You're either going to love one, hate the other, or hate the one and love the other. You can't have it both ways. Now, the second obstacle to us pleasing God, to believers pleasing God. Second obstacle is the flesh. First obstacle is the world. The second is the flesh. Now the flesh is that sin nature that's inherent in all of us. Our flesh is weak, our flesh is dead, and our flesh is hostile towards God. That's our sin nature. Romans 8, verse 6 and 7. For the mindset on the flesh is death. See, the flesh is dead. The mindset on the spirit is life and peace because the mindset on the flesh is what? Hostile towards God. Listen, if you're worldly, you're hostile to God. If you're fleshly, you're hostile to God. Why? Because it does not subject itself to the law of God for it is not even able to do so. Your sin nature does not want to obey God's law and therefore it's hostile. It's an enmity with God. There's nothing good about our flesh. Romans 7, 18. I know that nothing good dwells in me that's in my flesh, for the willing is present in me, but the doing of good is not. Folks, there's nothing good in your sin nature. Your flesh, your sin nature manifests itself in the immorality, in impurity, in sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strifes, Jealousy, outburst of anger, disputes, dissensions, factions, envy, and drunkenness, carousing, and things like these. Galatians 5, 19-21. Let me ask you, Christian. Is there any immorality in your life? Is there any impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, 
How about enmity? You got any enmity with anyone? Is there any strife between you and another believer? Jealousy? Anger outburst? Disputes? Oh, not in the church. Factions, dissensions, envying, drunkenness, crowds. Listen, those things are all marks of the flesh, of your sin nature. And so when you identify those things, when you see yourself involved in those things, you're, you're feeding your sin nature. And if you habitually practice those things, you're not going to inherit the kingdom of God. No genuine believer can habitually practice those things. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 50. Now I say this, brethren, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Galatians 5.21 says, that's the continuation of the verse we read a moment ago, those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. That term practice, proso, means to do something repeatedly or habitually. If you're repeatedly involved in immorality or impurity or sensuality or envy, drunk, whatever it may be, you're not going to inherit the kingdom of God. Now see, my friends, the day that you were regenerated, the day you were born again, you are no longer in the flesh but in the Spirit, Romans 8 9. You are not in the flesh but in the Spirit, if indeed the Spirit of God dwells in you. Now the moment you were saved, the Holy Spirit indwells you. you your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit. Therefore, sin should not reign in your body. But Romans 8 9 goes on to say, if you don't have the Spirit of Christ... You don't belong to Him. You're not a child of God. So the unregenerate, that's those people still in the flesh, still under the control of their sin nature, they cannot fulfill the law of God, therefore they cannot please God. Romans 8.8, 8, those who are in the flesh cannot please God. You want to please God? Don't give in to your flesh. Don't let your sin nature take control, because when it does, you're not pleasing God. This is an obstacle you've got to overcome. Now, you say, well, how do I fulfill the law of God? How do I obey God's law? Well, Matthew 22, 37 to 39 sums it up. You fulfill the law when you love God with all your heart, soul, and mind, and you love your neighbor as yourself. Matthew 22, verse 37, He said to them, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the great and foremost commandment. The second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. So how about it, Christian? Are you still living in your flesh? Well, let me, put, let me put it another way. Do you love God? Oh, absolutely. Love God. Do you love Him with everything? Do you love Him with all your heart? Or is there a part of your heart that's still holding on to your sin nature? Do you love Him with all your soul, all your being? Or is there a part of your being that's still involved in your sin nature? Do you love Him with all your mind? Or is there a part of your thoughts that are sinful? And do you love your neighbor the way you love yourself? Well, I only like some people and other people I just can't stand. Well, is that our sin nature speaking? Now, believers, we are regenerated. We're no longer unregenerate. We're no longer in the flesh. But understand, you still have a sin nature while you're in this world. You still have a sin nature. I still have a sin nature. And that is why we, we have to uh, uh, understand, we have to comprehend the idea that there's a battle going on within us. Now, praise God, there's a day coming when, when we will be transformed and that sin nature will be completely removed. But right now, currently, that sin nature is very much active in our lives, and that's why we have to crucify it. 
we have to put it to death. There's a struggle. Galatians 5.17 says the flesh sets its desire against the spirit, the spirit against the flesh. So here's your sin nature, but here's your new nature uh, given to you by the Holy Spirit who's indwelling you, and there's now an internal battle going on. They're in opposition to one another, Paul says in Galatians 5, so that you may not do the things that you please. See, on one hand, our flesh is pleased to do sin, and the Spirit wars against that. And on the other hand, the Spirit's directing us to want to be pleased in God, and our old sin nature is warring against that. But Christian, you can be victorious over, just like you can be victorious over the flesh, you can be victorious over your sin nature. But that begins, number one, with remembering that your flesh has been crucified with Christ. How shall we who died to sin still live in it? knowing that our old self was crucified with him in order that our body of sin might be done away with so that we would no longer be slaves to sin. Consider yourselves to be dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Romans 6, verse 2, verse 6, and verse 11. Galatians 2.20 I've been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ in me. Galatians 5.24 Those who belong to Christ Jesus have, have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If you're going to crucify the flesh, you've got to nail it all. So you've got to crucify it. Second, you've got, to be, you've got to practice daily being dead to sin. If we are living according to the flesh, we must die. But if by the Spirit we are putting to death the deeds of the body. Every day you've got to put them to death. Because every day they're going to creep out and they're going to try to take over. And every time they come out, every time that sin nature rears its ugly head, you have got to drive a nail through its head and put it to death. Third, do not give your sin nature an opportunity to take control of you. Romans 6, 12. Do not let sin reign in your moral body so that you obey its lust. That's why I said you've got to crucify it. Don't let it control you. The moment it gets out, the moment you don't nail it and crucify it, put it to death, it's going to be in control. You're no longer a slave to the flesh. You're no longer a slave to the flesh, so don't give it control again. Fourth, Yield your body to God as an instrument of righteousness. Yield your body to God as an instrument of righteousness. Romans 6.13 Present yourselves to God as those who are alive from the dead, your members as instruments of righteousness to God. So say no to sin, say yes to God. And then fifth, walk in the Spirit. Galatians 5.25 If we live by the Spirit, walk by the Spirit. The idea of walk means a habitual lifestyle. You cannot habitually live in submission to the Holy Spirit and habitually live in the flesh. So again, you're making a choice. You're making a choice to live according to the Holy Spirit and His dictates are found in the Word of God. So how about it, believer? Have you crucified your flesh? Have you crucified the world? Now, the third obstacle, the devil. Along with the world and the flesh, there is the third obstacle called the devil that's trying to prohibit you from pleasing God. The term devil, diabolos, depicts Satan as a false accuser or slander. Indeed, he is called the devil in his first introduction to the world. Why? Because he accused and slandered God. Is that really what God said? God doesn't want you to be happy. He slandered God. He's called Satan or Satanas because he's the adversary. He is the adversary, why? Because he's opposed to God. He's not only opposed to God, he's opposed to God's plan and opposed to God's people. Listen to the work of the, of the devil here. 
In Job chapter 1, verse 6 to 11, there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came among them. Satan answered the Lord, Does Job fear God for nothing? You have made a hedge about him and his house and all that he has on every side. You have blessed the work of his hands and his possessions have increased the land. He slandered God. He accused Job. He said, Job's only faithful to you because you've blessed him. You've protected him. Zechariah chapter 3 and verse 1, He showed me Joshua the high priest standing before the angel of the Lord and Satan standing at his right hand to accuse him. Revelation chapter 12 and verse 10. Now the salvation, the power, the kingdom of our God, the authority of His Christ has come. For the accuser of our brethren has been thrown down. He accuses them before our God day and night. Satan day and night is trying to accuse you, believer. Now listen, listen to this description here. The serpent was more crafty than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. Genesis chapter 3, verse 1. Satan, that's the serpent, he is crafty. He's, he's a schemer. That's why Ephesians 6, 11 tells us to put on the full armor of God so we can stand against the schemes of the devil. See, Satan's ready to do anything to get what he wants. The word crafty and scheming, arum and methodia, means he, he's a schemer. He's a flim-flammer. And while his schemes are many... Let me tell you, they fall into three areas. Every scheme of Satan falls into one of three areas. He used them with Adam and Eve, and he uses them today for us. You see, first, he cast out on God's word. He said to the woman, Indeed, has God said, You shall not eat from any tree of the garden. Did you catch that word there, indeed? That term indeed is used as a model or idiom to express uncertainty. It conveys the idea of turning up one's nose, of jeering or scoffing. Really? Has God really said? Satan uses this idiom to cast out on what God has said. Previously, God said, from any tree of the garden you may freely eat, Genesis 2.16. But Satan misquotes God's statement and says to Eve, has God said you shall not eat from any tree of the garden? He planted the idea in Eve's head that God's word is subject to her judgment thus creating doubt. And by creating doubt in Eve's mind about what God said, Satan caused confusion. And by confusing the facts, Eve questioned not only what God said, but ultimately God's character. Second, Satan will deny God's word. Satan will deny God's word. Genesis chapter 3, verse 4 to 5. The serpent said to the woman, You surely will not die. For God knows the day you eat from it, your eyes will be opened. You'll be like God, knowing good and evil. That's his expertise. John 8, 44, he's called the, the father of all lies. He, listen, what's he lie about? Well, he lies about the penalty of death and sin itself. He tells Adam and Eve that they can sin and get away with it. And by denying God's word, he's attacking the inerrancy of God's word. My friends, listen, if the Bible is not free from error, if it's not trustworthy on earthly matters... How can we trust it about heavenly matters? So Satan will deny God's word, and Satan will cast doubt on God's word. And third, Satan will try to cast doubt on God's character. Again, Genesis chapter 3, verse 1. He said to the woman, has God said? And then the serpent says to the woman, verse 4, You shall surely not die, for God knows in the day you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Notice he, he does three things here to cast doubt on God's character. 
He questions God's goodness. Indeed, has God said. He undermines the reality of God's goodness. He challenges Adam and Eve to question whether or not God has indeed been a good God. Instead of being a good God, Satan makes him out to be a spoil sport. Second, Satan questioned God's veracity. By denying the penalty of death, Satan's calling God a liar. And third, he challenged God's justice. He says, well, God is self-serving. He's holding Adam and Eve back from being like himself. Instead of being a just God, Satan says God is unfair and unjust. He convinces Adam and Eve that sin will set them free. He tells them that their eyes will be opened. That they're going to be endowed with the capacity of making decisions independent of God. He convinces them that they will become like God. You know what the irony of this statement is? It's found in the fact that God had already created man and woman like him. Now we not understand that Satan may be powerful, but he's not more powerful than God. You are from God, little children, and have overcome them, because greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world. 1 John 4, 4. And I want you to understand, my friends, that he cannot possess you as a believer because the Holy Spirit indwells you. But he or one of his demonic horde can assault you, they can tempt you, they can slander you, they can accuse you. So what are you to do? Well, first, you need to be prepared for Satan's attack. And preparation begins by being sober-minded and alert. 1 Peter chapter 5 and verse 8. Be of sober spirit, be on the alert. Your adversary the devil prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Sober-minded, nepho, means to be self-controlled, to be clear-minded. Again, that's where Satan's assaults are going to go. They're going to come against your mind. And if you have an undisciplined mind, you are apt to succumb to his schemes. Being alert, Gregorio, means to keep watch for danger, to be vigilant. You've got to be vigilant, believer. You've got to be always on the watch for the enemy. He's a roaring lion. He's on the prowl. And he's not always going to attack you from the front. Often he's going to come from the rear. Often he's going to go after the weak. He's going to go after the young. He's going to go after the struggling now let me warn you that feelings of fear or weakness or helplessness are the areas that are prime targets for the devil. So you've got to be prepared. Second, you've got to resist. You've got to resist the devil. 1 Peter 5, 9, resist him firm in your faith, knowing that the same experience of suffering are being accomplished by your brethren who are in the world. James 4, 7, submit therefore to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. That word resist, anthistime, means to stand against, to oppose, or withstand. Standing against or opposing the enemies requires the, that you know who your enemy is and what his tactics are. And when you resist the devil, it, it's going to mean that you've got to be steadfast or resolute in your faith. But God has provided you the means to do that. He's given you the armor of God. Ephesians 6, 11, Put on the full armor of God so that you can be, be able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. So let me just review the armor of God. You've got the helmet. It's forged from one piece of metal and it protects your head and neck. The helmet of salvation guards your mind from false doctrine and from temptation. You've got the breastplate. The breastplate is an offensive weapon. It protects your chest. The breastplate of righteousness comes from Christ and guards your heart against Satan's accusation. The belt was worn at all times to support the dagger, the sword, and the, and the, and the breastplate. The belt of truth, the truth of Scripture, guards your sanctification. 
Your sword you carried on your right side is an offensive weapon to be waved at the enemy. The sword of the Spirit is the word of God that wards off Satan's temptations. The shield was a defense for your entire body, and so the shield of faith quenches the fiery darts of the devil and guards you against doubts about God. And then finally, the sandals were embedded with nails and rock for, tra- for traction. They were designed for marching and standing for long periods of time. And so the sandals of the gospel of peace enable you to advance into Satan's territory with the gospel. It enables you to stand firm against Satan's attack. So the world, the flesh, the devil, three obstacles, but there are others. Let's move on to the fourth obstacle, the Pharisaical leaven. Another obstacle which we face is the leaven of the Pharisees. In Matthew 16, verse 12, they understood not that he, or excuse me, then they understood that he did not say to beware the leaven of bread, but the teaching of the Pharisees. Beware the leaven of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. Luke 12, verse 1. Now, the leaven of the Pharisees is their teaching, their doctrine, and hypocrisy. Their corrupt doctrine and hypocrisy are compared to leaven because, like leaven, it is pervasive and penetrating. As 1 Corinthians 5, 6 says, Don't you know a little leaven leavens the whole lump of dough? See, their doctrine viewed law-keeping as a means of salvation. And then they added their traditions to the Scripture, which was a clear violation of God's law. In Deuteronomy 4, 2, he says, Do not add to the words, I command you, nor take away from it. Keep the commandments of the Lord. The fact is, they added more to what God said. And their hypocrisy bore itself out when they became more concerned with the external conformity to their man-made rules, which produced nothing more than self-righteousness, than conforming themselves to God's law, which would have produced true righteousness. Jesus told us that if our righteousness does not exceed the righteousness of the Pharisees, we will not enter the kingdom of God. Matthew 5.20 Unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees, you will not enter the kingdom of God. This is an absolute. That term, unless, may, implies a condition, a necessary condition, an absolute. This, is not, this, is a, this, this warning is not a threat, it's a promise. You, Christian, your righteousness must surpass that self-righteousness of the Pharisees. Say again, I'll say it again. Their righteousness was external conformity to man-made rules. You, Christian, your righteousness has to be God-given and conform to the spirit of God's law. You know, the letter of the law says don't commit murder, but the spirit of the law says that if you have seething anger or bitterness or hate towards another person, you are guilty of committing murder. You're murdering them. Matthew 5, 21 and 22. Listen, you can profess to be a Christian, but you are nothing more than a spiritual phony if you do not possess faith. John MacArthur made this statement, Jesus lifted up the law in the Old Testament so high that he wound up exposing the Pharisees and the scribes as hypocrites. Jesus arrives and opens up his sermon by saying, here's my standard of righteousness, here's how you live in the world, and the base of it all is being obedient to God's invaluable and unchanging law. Anyone who doesn't live by God's standard, who substitutes a man-made system, is no more than a spiritual phony. See, you can profess to be a Christian, but you're nothing more than a phony if you don't possess true faith. And how do, you, how, how do you know if you got true faith, if you possess genuine faith? It's seen in your obedience to God's righteous standard. James chapter 2, verse 14. What use is it, my brethren, if someone says he has faith but has no works? Can that faith save him? 
Faith, if it has no works, is dead. See, my friends, true, genuine faith produces obedience. Now, the self-righteous Pharisees fooled others. They even fooled themselves. They were convinced they were pleasing God, but they fell short. There's many today in the church that are just as fooled as the Pharisees. Listen, the Pharisees were evangelistic. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You travel around on sea and land to make one proselyte. And when he becomes one, you make him twice as much a son of hell as yourself. Just because you're involved in evangelism or missions does not mean that you're pleasing to God. Listen, the Pharisees tithed everything. Matthew 23, 23. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. You tithe your mint, your dill, and cumin, but have neglected the weightier provisions of the law, such as justice, mercy, and faithfulness. Just because you give to the Lord's work doesn't mean you're pleasing God. Listen, the Pharisees majored on prayer. They stood and prayed this to himself. God, I thank you that I'm not like all other people. I'm not a swindler. I'm not unjust. I'm not an adulterer. Or not even like this tax collector. Luke 18, 11. See, they were quick to draw attention to their prayers. They were quick, quick, quick to demand certain postures and, and, and at a certain eloquence of the word. But let me assure you that your posture in prayer or the words that you pray do not indicate that you're pleasing to God. Hey, listen, these Pharisees even read the scriptures every day. John 5.39, you search the scriptures because you think in them you have eternal life. Again, reading the Bible is not conforming or obeying the Bible. They read it. They didn't obey it. You can read the Bible. You can quote the Bible and still not please God if you don't obey the Bible. Again, evangelization, giving, praying, Bible reading are all good in and of themselves. But if you're trusting in those things to commend yourself to God, you have fooled yourself. Because you can do those things and not be righteous. That's why a man's got to examine himself. He's got to check his heart. Because if your heart isn't right, you're a hypocrite. You can keep the letter of the law and not the spirit of the law. That's the problem. Genuine righteousness not only keeps the letter, it keeps the spirit of the law. The fifth... The fifth obstacle that we need to overcome is antinomianism. Antinomianism. Now, antinomianism, what is it? Well, antinomianism comes from two terms, antinomos, meaning lawlessness. 1 John 3, 4, everyone who practices sin practices lawlessness, and sin is lawlessness. Antinomianism is the spirit of lawlessness that reigns in the children of disobedience. In fact, later the Antichrist in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 and verse 3 and 8 is called the lawless one. He's the epitome of the spirit of lawlessness. So antinomianism says, hey, you no longer need God's law. Now wait a minute. Isn't God's law, the obedience to God's law, the, the means by which we demonstrate ourselves to be righteous? But yet we live in a day and a time in which the church is taught that the, God's law has been done away at the cross. I got news for you, my friend. God's law is not done away. It still restrains sin and it still promotes righteousness. It still convicts sin and it still commends sinners to the right Redeemer. And it still governs how we live. That's why we're told by Christ to love God and others. That's right out of the law. That's why John 14, 15, 21, and 23, Jesus said, If you love me, keep my law, keep my commandments. You see, when you remove the law of God, you create spiritual anarchy. And so we've got Christians, quote unquote, who are still living a life of sin. 
In fact, what we really have is a generation of professing Christians who don't possess faith. They're still dead in their sin. So how do we resist this allure of antinomianism? Well, first of all, you've got to remember this. Christ has redeemed you from lawlessness. Titus 2.14 He has given himself to redeem us from every lawless anomia deed and to purify himself a people for his own possession. You are set free from lawlessness and then if that's the case, why would you want to again enslave yourself to lawlessness? Think about this. If you've been saved from lawlessness, you have not been saved to lawlessness. You've been saved to obedience to the law. And let me also add a word here. Be careful. Don't join together in spiritual endeavors with those who are lawless. 2 Corinthians 6.14 Do not be bound together with unbelievers for what partnership does righteousness and lawlessness have together? Those who practice lawlessness or antinomianism will not enter the kingdom of God will be cast in the lake of fire. Matthew 7.23, I declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. Matthew 13.41, the Son of Man will send forth his angels and they'll gather out of his kingdom all stumbling blocks and those who commit lawlessness and will throw them into the furnace of fire and that place will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And let me say this. Another means to keep you from lawlessness or from antinomianism is not just to remember that Christ redeemed you from it, but secondly, to meditate on God's law regularly. Joshua 1.8, This book of the law shall not depart out of my mouth, but I will meditate on it day and night, so that I will be careful to do according to all that is written in it, and then I will, my way will be prosperous, and then I will have success. That word meditate, haga, means to diligently study it every day. That's your duty, to diligently study God's law. As you diligently study it, as you meditate on it, you'll learn what is pleasing to Him. There is a final obstacle. A final obstacle. And that is carnal Christianity. Carnal Christianity. The unregenerate life is marked by continual disobedience to God. Says you were dead in trespasses and sin in which you formerly walked according to this cor the course of this world. Ephesians chapter two verse one. But then, at the moment of salvation, the Holy Spirit regenerated you and made you a new person. There's only two types of people. There's regenerate and unregenerate. There's the old man. There's the new man. There's the saved and there's the unsaved. The unsaved, the unregenerate, is fleshly, whereas the regenerate is spiritual. But yet we are facing a teaching that has been spewed out for the last several decades that there's now a third type of person who's not unregenerate, who's not completely regenerate, who's somewhere in the middle, and we're going to call him the carnal Christian. Carnal Christianity says, well, you can be saved and not produce fruit. My friends, James says, without faith, without works, is dead faith. Dead faith doesn't please God. Dead faith doesn't get you into heaven. They want you to believe that you can receive Jesus as your Savior, but not to submit to Him as your Lord. Let me tell you, Romans 10 verse 9 says that if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart God raised Him from the dead, you'll be saved. And you can only pronounce that He is Lord 
through the Holy Spirit. 1 Corinthians 12, 3. But they want you to think that you can backslide. They want you to think you can live in sin. I got news for you. That term backslidden is nowhere in the New Testament. In fact, the only time the idea of backslidden or backsliding is found in the Bible is in the Old Testament when it referenced Israel having committed apostasy. And what is apostasy? But forsaking God and defecting from the faith. He says in Hebrews chapter 6 verse 4 to 6, that those who commit apostasy were never truly saved. They cannot come and, re and be renewed again to repentance. Hebrews 10 says in verse 26, If you go on sinning willfully, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sin. Someone who, who backslides or who apostatizes was never truly saved to begin with. And they risk the, uh, the fact that the fact is they risk ever being truly saved. So don't feed me this idea of carnal Christianity and say, oh, well, I'm just backslidden. Buddy, if you're backslidden, you're an apostate and you're on your way to hell. And you better repent before it's too late. Backslidden. Another lie out of the pit of hell. But pastor, didn't Paul call himself carnal? Well, let's read what Romans 7.14 says. For we know that the law is spiritual, and I am a flesh sold into the bondage of sin. That's not a proof of carnal Christianity. When Paul says that he's of the flesh or he's carnal, he's talking about his ongoing struggle between his old man and his new man. Romans chapter 7, verse 22 to 25. For I joyfully concur with the law of God in my inner man. But I see a different law in the members of my body, waging war against the law of my mind, making me a prisoner of the law of sin, which is in my members. O wretched man that I am, who will set me free from the body of this death? On the one hand, I myself in my mind, I'm serving the law of God, but on the other, in my flesh, the law of sin. Notice the struggle between the old and new person is a struggle between submitting to the law of God or the law of sin. You've been set free from the law of sin, Romans 6. Christ who has raised you from the dead, is never to die again. Death no longer is master over him. Even so, consider yourselves to be dead to the law of sin. The law of the spirit of life in Christ has set you free from the law of sin and death. Romans 8, 2. That means sin no longer reigns in you. But that, whole, that old nature has not yet been completely destroyed. It's still waging war. And you're going to struggle. But I got news for you. With the Holy Spirit's empowerment, you will overcome. Because you are strong and the word of God abides in you, you have overcome the evil one. 1 John chapter 2, verse 14. You are from God, little children, and have overcome them, because greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. 1 John 4, 4. Whatever is born of God overcomes the world, and this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Who is the one who overcomes the world? But he who believes that Jesus is the Son of God. My friends, to the extent that you struggle with your old nature, you are carnal, I am carnal. But we're carnal only in that sense, that there's a war going on, there's a struggle going on. We're not carnal in the sense or in the idea that we're living a life of continuous disobedience. If you're living a life of continuous disobedience, you're not truly saved. Oh, Pastor, that's not nice. No, listen, you're right, it's not nice. But I'm telling you that because I want you to repent of your sin and put your faith in God. In Jesus Christ's finished work and truly be saved. And you'll want to live like a new creature in Christ. Don't just profess faith. Possess faith. Make sure the Holy Spirit's indwelling you. 
That old carnal Christianity nonsense is a foe, deadly foe, in the pursuit of pleasing God. That nonsense has, has deceived too many people with a false sense of security. They think they're pleasing God and they're on their way to hell. Again, MacArthur said, contemporary theologians fabricated an entire category of carnal Christians. Who knows how many unregenerate persons have been lulled into a false sense of spiritual security by the suggestion they are merely carnal. Christians can and do behave in carnal ways, but nothing in Scripture suggests that a real Christian would pursue a lifestyle of unbroken indifference or antagonism towards the things of God. Christians do not masquerade as children of the devil. In fact, the reverse is true. It is Satan who pretends to be an angel of light. And his servants imitate the children of righteousness. 2 Corinthians eleven fourteen to 15 My friend, if you truly are a child of God, if you claim to be a Christian, I want you to heed God's word and test yourselves to see if your faith is legitimate. 2 Corinthians 13, 5 Test yourself to see if you are in the faith. Examine yourselves. Make sure that Jesus Christ is in you unless you fail the test. How many, for lack of examination, are deceiving themselves and thinking they're pleasing God when in fact God is displeased with them. Do not be deceived by the allure of false theology. And my friends, please don't stumble over one of these obstacles. Whether it's the world, the flesh, the devil, the hypocrisy of pharisaicalism, the, the lie of, of lawlessness, or the lie of carnal Christianity, don't let it be an obstacle. Don't let any of those things keep you from pleasing God. Review this sermon. Go over it. Review it. Go step by step. Take a part of it. Go back to the section on the world. Hey, how do I overcome the world? Hey, how do I overcome the world? The flesh. How do I overcome the devil? And put into practice those areas so that not only will you be pleasing to God, but as you're pleasing to God, you won't stumble. Let's pray. Father in heaven, Lord, we thank and praise you. For, for revealing to us these obstacles to pleasing you. Lord, we desire to please you. We want to please you. But we confess that we fail. We fall. We stumble. And many times it's over these very obstacles, these six things, these six areas. God, may your grace be sufficient. You've given us your spirit. You've given us your word. And through your spirit and through your word, I pray that you'd help us as you've promised to make us overcomers. So that, Lord, we might see these obstacles. And in seeing them ahead, we may steer ourselves away from them. But, Father, should we awake and find ourselves in the midst of them, overtaken by them, oh, God, I pray that you might rescue us, reach down and yank us out from these hidden enemies, lest they destroy us. Rescue us and set us back on the course that we are to run. Father, I thank you that, Lord, you not only tell us what the obstacles are, but you also in your word reveal to us how to overcome them. And I thank you, Father, that you are the one who enables us to overcome. And because you enable us, we can overcome as we submit ourselves to your will. And so, Lord, help us to that end, we pray in your Son's name. Amen.